morning, everybody. My name is Bobby. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for joining us this morning for our worship gathering. And uh, I was talking to Chris earlier, and uh, you know, we we advertise that our gathering starts at ten, um, but that's not when what happens up here starts. Our fellowship with one another, our coming, greeting each other, spending time catching up with all of the things that we do here every Sunday morning is our worship gathering. It's part of who we are and what we do to express who we are as followers of Jesus Christ, as people in friendship and relationship together Uh, different parts of the community spread out all over Indianapolis throughout the week. Uh, And this is one of the places where we can come together to express that. And so, yeah, what we do up front here on Sunday mornings is not the sum total of our gathering together uh, each Sunday. So I'm thankful that each one of you are here. I know we've got a number of people that are kind of soaking up the last bit of summer this weekend and traveling and out uh, before kids go. I know some kids are back in school. Some kids go back this coming week. Uh, I know people are out and about, but I'm thankful that you are here. And we are finishing up this morning our series that we've been in over the summer months in the letter of First John. First uh, John has been um, a very instructive letter for us, not only seeing who this was written to, what they were going through, why this letter was written, but also connecting it to us. Um, I mentioned this up front, a good rule of reading the Bible uh, and understanding the Bible is knowing that this uh, was not written to us, but it was written for us. So making that that distinction, but also making that connection. So this morning, we're going to finish up our study in 1 John together. Next week, uh, we are going to gather back here for worship and for prayer. So we are going to sing. We are going to spend time praying for our church community and specifically praying. I don't know if if you all have have been aware of this or have seen this, just praying for peace in our city. Um, This has been a particularly violent summer uh, in our city, and um, that weighs heavy on us as a church community that is in this city and for this city. Uh, We want to pray for the peace of our city. And so we're going to gather together next Sunday and we're going to sing, we're going to worship, we're going to pray and and lift up our hearts and voices to the Lord together. Um, And then the next few weeks um, of August and then into the Labor Day weekend, uh, we're going to do some one-off things as as far as our teaching goes. in a couple of weeks, we're going to welcome back Montez Rowley. You know, uh, a lot of you know Tez and, and, and remember Tez. Tez is um, the youth pastor up at Mercy Road Church, uh, just right up the street from us. And so Tez is going to come and, and open the word for us from Colossians 3 and talk about what life in Christ looks like. Uh, following that, we're going to have Harry Howe. Harry's going to um, talk about work and mission, something that is near and dear to Harry's heart and uh, a way in which he is helping serve our body and help us think through our workplace as a mission field. And so we're looking forward to hearing from you, Harry. And then um, the first week of September Labor Day weekend, uh, I will be doing uh, a, a teaching on spiritual warfare. Uh, 
uh, just how do we understand uh, what's going on in, in, in the spiritual realm. And we're going to follow that up the next week, doing a workshop that following Saturday on some specific ways in which we have to engage in that spiritual battle. Chris is actually going to share a little bit more about that at the close of our service this morning. So anyway, that's where we're going over the next few weeks. Just want to give you a picture of that. And then um, that following week, the second Sunday in September, we'll be celebrating our 40-year anniversary as a church. We're going to start a vision series uh, just as we look forward to the next year as a church community, what do we want to be about? What are, what are our values? What are the things that we believe God has called us to live into over the next year? So I'm looking forward to, to getting into that. But first, this morning, First John. And, and I wanted to open this up uh, by just sharing with you my uh, passion, our family's passion for the Olympic Games over the last couple of weeks. I don't know uh, about you all, but this is something that we as a family really enjoy. We, we uh, every night <laughs> we spend watching the Olympics, we keep up with the Olympics. Um, it's something that not only do we enjoy watching the events, but uh, we enjoy the personal side of it and all of the human interest stories that they weave in through the Olympic, Olympic Games. And um, I don't know about you, but I have noticed this year uh, a lot more emphasis on the family aspect of the Olympics, particularly the athletes' families. And because they've been not been allowed to have their families travel to the games and be with them there, you know, they set up these, uh, you know, kind of Zoom things or like live watch parties. And after the athletes get done with their events, you know, and they do their interview, they're often like face, letting them FaceTime with their families. And you can see how much that means to them. Um, Sometimes we look at these athletes and world-class athletes, people who are way different <laughs> physically than you and me, and it's easy to see them as robots, as just people that are, are, are just kind of outside of the norm, and in one sense they are. But in those moments, you see, no, these are people that are really like us. You know, they have moms and dads and brothers and sisters, and they have friends, and they have people that you can tell as they are competing at the highest level that they would not be able to do this without the support of these folks. And in particular, there's been a lot of uh, focus on athletes who have been adopted, uh, a lot of different athletes that have been adopted. And I don't know if you've seen this commercial. Um, it aired during the Super Bowl, and they continue to air it, uh, featuring Olympic swimmer Jessica Long. Um, she was uh, uh, adopted um, by uh, a family, an American, a U.S. family, she, from a um, orphanage in Russia. And what's unique about Jessica is she was born without legs from the knees down. And uh, this commercial, it's a Toyota com commercial, has her swimming, has kind of the, the uh, story of her parents getting the call and uh, their response and just her little glimpses of her life growing up. And I actually read an um, interview with Jessica that she talked about 
how her family didn't really talk a whole lot about what that process looked like growing up, but as she was filming this commercial, it brought up a lot of stuff that her and her mom and her dad began to talk through. And she was talking about as as she was filming this commercial, and there's a specific scene kind of at the end where she like swims up to the edge of this pool and is looking and sees her this interaction with her mom over the phone. She was like, yeah, as I was filming that, all of those emotions hit me. And she was like, I was weeping as I was filming that. And so it was just another example of how all of these athletes, um, their sons, their daughters, their brothers, their sisters, they come from a bigger system than just their own individual event or even their team. Jessica is one of the most decorated Olympians ever. We know that family is complicated, right? We see that and we recognize that. We also live in the reality that family can be complicated. Parents can intentionally and unintentionally hurt. They can cause damage to their children that takes a lifetime to work through. And I know that some of you are in that process and that has been your experience. We know that siblings, brothers and sisters can betray, can take advantage of each other. And again, I know that there are some of us here who have and are experiencing that I also know that we here want to create family that is steadfast, that is secure. Those of us who are parents or who are desiring to be parents know that there is real power that comes from being a loved child and living in that knowledge and in that understanding that you are loved, that you are safe, that you are secure. This parent-child-sibling relationship is one of the most used metaphors in Scripture for God and God's people. And this morning, that's what I want to look at with you from 1 John. That at the root of this life of light and love, that's what we've titled this series, A Life of Light and Love, At the root of that is our identity as God's children. And this morning, what I want you to see is that we are God's children because of his love for us. But also, we know that we are God's children when our lives reflect his. So here's our passage this morning, 1 John 2. We're going to start in verse 28, and we're going to go into chapter 3. So if you haven't turned there or scrolled there, you can go ahead and do that. Listen to these words from John. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. 
The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John states again what his aim is, what his desire is for these folks, these friends of his, people that he knows, people that he is helping to shepherd and to guide as a pastor, as an elder. His aim for them is that they would abide in Jesus, that they would live in Jesus. Just as John heard Jesus tell him and his other friends, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus wanted his closest friends to know him, to be known by him, to live a life where they would experience his power, where they would experience his life. John wants the same thing for these folks. Remember, John is writing this letter as a pastor, as a pastor to people who are hurt, to people who are confused, to people who have experienced false teachers that cause division, false teachers who are friends, who are family, who are neighbors, who had abandoned this church community. And John is writing to these folks whom he loves, don't leave, don't give up, remain in Jesus. So that when he comes back, so that when Christ comes back, you can enter his presence confidently and not ashamed. And the first thing that John wants them to know, remain in Jesus, abide in Jesus. To do that, you need to know who you are. I want to remind you who you are. You are God's children. You're God's children. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but these folks had been left 
confused. They had been left in doubt. Is Jesus who we really believe that he is? Because all these people that we knew, all these people we loved, all these people who we thought were part of us told us that he's not. John has said from the beginning, yes, I've seen Jesus. I've known Jesus. I've touched Jesus. I've spent time with Jesus. I've seen the things and experienced what Jesus can do. You can know that who you believe Jesus to be, that's who he is. Jesus is God in the flesh. Okay. All right. But are we who we think we are? Because these same people told us, well, if you believe what you believe about Jesus, then what does that make you? You're wrong. You're not really following God. You don't really know God because what you believe about this Jesus guy, that's not really true. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that the enemy comes after us. And when the enemy comes after us, the way that he comes after us is to question what we believe about God and to question what we believe about ourselves. He comes to attack our identity. He comes to attack our identity. He, because he did the same thing to Jesus. Do you remember what happened in John 3 and 4? I'm sorry, Luke 3 and 4? When Jesus comes and shows up at the Jordan River, and John the Baptist baptizes him. And God says and God declares, this is my son. What happens next? The spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness. And the enemy comes. And what does he say? If you're really God's son. If you're really God's son. And he begins to accuse and he begins to cast doubt. He begins to sow seeds of confusion. He did it with Jesus and he does the same thing to you and to me. Those voices in our head that we hear. Those whispers. You don't really love God as much as you should. You're kind of a disappointment to God. You don't really deserve to be forgiven. Wait, you're asking for forgiveness for that again? Also the voices that we can hear from others. How can you be a Christian and believe fill in the blank? You say you love Jesus, so why won't you do this for me? Why won't you give me this? those doubts, those accusations used for manipulation, those lies and half-truths that cause guilt and produce shame. All of that is the enemy creating distance between us and our Father. I mean, we just sang that, that no amount of untruths can separate us well, that's exactly what the devil wants to do, is to separate us. 
to bring us into a place where we live in shame and in guilt far away from our Father. Too embarrassed to go to Him. Feeling too unworthy to enter His presence. That is the work of the enemy, the accuser, that Jesus says has been lying from the beginning. John's answer to those doubts. John's answer to those questions of identity is emphatic. You are God's child. You are God's child. Do not doubt that you are God's child. Do not question whether God really loves you. Because you are God's child, not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, Not because you got in with God's good graces and now have to stay there. You are God's child because of his love given to you. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. We are children of God because of his love. God's love has given us life. God's love has given us an identity. God's love has given us a family. A family where we are secure. A family where we are safe. A family where we always have access into his presence. That's a word that we need to hear this morning. That's a word that some of us need to not only believe here, but need to take it in all the way. You are a child of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you have been brought into the family of God. God loves you. You are His. And that's the basis of the juxtaposition that John lays out in the next few verses. Children of God, those who are of God, and those who are not of God. He says that the world does not recognize us because we are children of God. Our beliefs, our worldviews, our practices, our values, what we call here life with God under the rule of God, the kingdom of God, it doesn't align with the systems of this world, the structures, the, the places, the people who are disassociated from God, who do not know God. Because we are known by God as his children. Because we know God. We can't be known by a world that doesn't know God. There will always be. Because there always has been a conflict there. A separation there. We are God's family. And that makes us different in this world. We are of God. I'm going to get into that in a minute. So by nature... We cannot be of this world. We can know that we are children of God because his love for us. And for people who were battered, who were confused, who were hurt, who were trying to figure out where do we go from here? What does this mean for us? This was John saying to them, you are God's child. Do not doubt that. Live in that identity. 
And that's where he goes next. We can know that we are God's because we live in a way that reflects it. Look at verse 2 and 3 again, chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We are children of God now. But because we are children of God now, we also hope and look forward to Jesus' return and we prepare ourselves for that return. This is the posture of God's children. It's looking back at the cross where God's love for us was demonstrated, where God gave up his own son so that we could become sons and daughters of God. And it's looking forward to the fact that, that, that God's son will return and that what we are now will be made fully known in all of our experience, in all of our reality, that we will live with God under his rule as the family of God forever and ever and ever. This informs how we think about ourselves, the way that we see ourselves as children of God. This shapes our practices, our, our worship, our service in the community and service with each other, our, our fellowship and our relationships, our friendships with each other. This is the motivation for our lives. We look back at the cross and we look forward to his return. John says that when we do that, we are purifying ourselves or, or cleansing ourselves. This has that idea of, of that ritual cleansing that God's people were to undertake when they entered the temple, when they entered the tabernacle, to consecrate or to, to make holy. Because we know who God is, that God is holy, that God is righteous, we strive to be like Him. This sets up the further just, juxtaposition in the following verse, verses. God's children and those who aren't. Look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness, Righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep sinning, because he has been born of God. By this is it, it is evident, who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. There's a lot to unpack there. But John is trying to be as simple and as clear as he can be. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous because God is righteous. That's what he said in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness 
has been born of him. That born of him sounds familiar, doesn't it? John recorded that, Jesus' interaction with this Pharisee, this teacher of the law named Nicodemus. Listen to what Jesus told him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, which is probably what I would have said too, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. I mentioned this in the opening. Adoption is a metaphor that is used throughout the New Testament of those who have been brought into the family of God. And it's a beautiful picture of God welcoming us, inviting us into his family, making us one of his children. But here, Jesus and John are saying that it it's actually something more than that. It's something deeper than that. It's not just legally becoming the children of God. It's a rebirth. It's actually receiving the DNA, the genes of God. That's what he says in verse 9. God's seed abides in us. God's seed, literally in the Greek, sperma, abides in us. That seed is the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God. God's very presence. The Spirit, as Jesus said, is what gives us God's life. It's what brings us into the new life that God has for us. This is what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. You, you and me, those of us who are in Christ, we are new people. We have new genes. We have new DNA. We have God's very life in us. And there are a ton of implications to that that we don't have time to get into. But John says one of the implications here is this. Those who practice righteousness are righteous because God is righteous. You've got God's life in you. You have his righteous life in you. His spirit, his presence, the power to live in a way that reflects our Father. In a way that shows that he's our dad. Conversely, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order, Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. I was talking to Pastor Nate this week, and we were 
kind of nerding out on some some Greek and stuff, and you don't need to know all that. But um, what is translated here, practice of or practices, is not a great translation for what is actually being said here. But as you know, there's not one-to-one language translation. So this is kind of the best way that the English can translate what John is saying here. Literally, it means to do sin or to do righteousness. It has this idea that it's an orientation of a person. That when John says everyone who makes a practice of sinning, He's not talking about like people who sin because that's all of us, right? (laughs) Like there's nobody in this room who hasn't or doesn't or won't ever sin. What John is getting at here is sin, 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 sinning, sinning, keeping on sinning and sinning and sinning. He says that sin is lawlessness. That the person who keeps on sinning and sinning and sinning just has a disregard for what is right. Which means they have a life that opposes who God is and what Jesus came to do. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. He drills down deeper with the next connection. In verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Just as John said, those who practice righteousness or do righteousness are righteous because God is righteous, then that means that they are born of God. He's making those same connections here. That those who practice sin, do sin, 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 and keep on sinning are lawless because the devil sins from the beginning and they are born of the devil. The main point here is verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John is trying to be very clear here. There are children of God and there are not children of God. Those who practice righteousness and live righteously are children of God and those who do not practice righteousness and don't live righteous are not children of God. But here's what John is not saying. John is not saying that those who are born of God won't ever sin. He says as much in chapter 1, verse 9. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. and To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says it a few verses later at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, "I, I don't want you to sin. I mean, I don't think any of us would look at each other and say like, hey, I I don't care if you sin or not. Like, we don't want each other to sin. We don't want each other to hurt or to, uh, you know, experience the consequences of sin. 
But he goes on to say that when you do sin, you have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who will forgive your sins. Confession and repentance is actually practicing righteousness. Not advocating for sinless perfection here for those of us who are born of God. Not heaping burdens on us or putting up some unattainable standard like, well, you better do this, 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 and this if, you re- if you're really a child of God. He's not saying that those who are not born of God can't ever do what is right. We know that to be true as well. All of us in this world made in the image of God, the capability of doing what is right. And there are many people who are outside of the family of God who do what is right. What we need to remember is that John's letter here, again, is not a verse-by-verse theological doctrinal explanation of everything. John is writing to people who are hurting, to people who are trying to figure out what is next. And I think the key is there in verse 7, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. Let no one come in and say, hey, I'm one of you. We're in the same family. We have the same dad. But obviously they're not one of you because they're spreading lies. They're hurting people. They're living for themselves. They're not loving their brother or sister. That's the context within which John is writing. He wants to protect these friends, these folks that are children of God, these people who are in his family. He wants to protect them from false teachers. In his follow-up letter, 2 John, that's exactly what he's doing. Saying these folks who come in, say they're one of you, but are undermining everything that Jesus is and is about. Don't associate with those people. Protect yourself from those people. They aren't one of you. They're not of us. They're not with us. Be on the lookout for them and don't let them deceive you. This is a pastoral warning from John. And as I think about that in our context, of course, like I spoke about a few weeks ago, we need to be on our guard for false teachers and people who would try to come in and just spread lies and dissension and, and divide. But we also need to recognize those who want to use us or use the name of Jesus for their own gain. I think living in our country here where, remember, this is not, John's not writing to people living in a context that is sympathetic and and familiar and buddy-buddy with Christians and Christ followers. We live in a very different context than these folks do. When I think about this for our life in the here and in the now and to come, we need to be on our guard from people who would come in and say, hey, I'm one of you. 
Hey, we're, we're the same. People who want to use us for political gain. People want to use us for financial gain. People who want to use us for spiritual influence. Those are folks that we need to be aware of. We need to be on our guard and on the lookout for, hey, we're one of you. We, we're, 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 we're here for you. We love Jesus like you do. Okay. Are you righteous like he's righteous? Are you righteous like he's righteous? Because that's who we are as God's children. And that's what we are pursuing. So if you're coming and saying, we are one of you, we are with you, we want you to be a, to do these things that we're doing or support these things that we're about, okay, are you righteous like he is righteous? Are you cleansing yourselves like we are cleansing ourselves? Are you pursuing life with God under his rule? Because that's what we're doing here. That's who we are. We are God's children. And we are seeking to live in a way that reflects our dad. We need to be careful not to make this message from John more or less than what it is. Sometimes it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, are, are people who, you know, who, should I be trying to figure out who's a Christian? And who's, that's not what John is talking about here. That's not his aim here. He's writing to warn and to protect. He's also writing to encourage, to encourage these folks. I'll be honest with you, when you look across the landscape of maybe quote-unquote popular Christianity, it's super depressing right now. It's super depressing and discouraging. When we see the division, when we see the partisanship, when we see the church abusing people, hurting people, covering it up, when we see the church grasping for worldly power and fame and influence. I've had so many of these conversations with many of you and and so many conversations with many of our brothers and sisters that live elsewhere, part of different church communities around the city. It's heavy and it's discouraging. And we see people who get to a place where they're like, I'm discouraged. I'm beat up. I don't know what to do. I'm out. I'm out. I don't want to be associated with this. I don't want to be like these people. I'm out. John was writing to these folks who were probably feeling the same way, who had experienced this personally. And what he says is, my desire for you is to abide. To abide. Know Jesus. Be known by him. Don't give up. Don't give up. Okay, what do we do? How should we respond in this moment? Do righteousness. Do righteousness. That's the, that's the exhortation here. That's the encouragement here. And he spent this entire letter talking to them about what this means. Walk in the light, not in the dark. Don't love and seek acceptance from the world because you're not of the world. 
Love God. Pursue what he says is good. Confess your sins and receive his forgiveness. Love each other as Jesus has loved us and laid his life down for us. Lay your lives down for one another. Keep serving each other. Keep bearing each other's burdens. Keep doing the things that you know will lift each other up and support each other. Reject lies and embrace and live by the truth that you have heard from the beginning. This is John's message to these folks. And this is what is for us as a church community. As we think about how do we exist as God's children in this city, in this state, in this nation, in this world, practice righteousness. Stay the course. Abide in him. This is the way. This is the way. This is how God's love is at work in us. And this is how we show the world whose we are. This is how we show the world who we belong to. This is how God wants to be known in the world. God is known in the world through his people. His people who are living lives of light and love. So as we think about this for us, I just want you to know, you know, I mentioned earlier as we look, we're looking, you know, to this next year or so. And like, what is, what is this, who are we as a church and how are we going to exist? It's this right here. It's this right here. We're going to continue to affirm and encourage one another. We're God's children. We are sons of God. We are daughters of God. God loves us, God is in us, and God in his power is going to work through us in this world as we continue to abide and remain in him. As we come to our time of communion, we do it in this same posture that John is encouraging these folks. We look back at the cross God's love on display for us. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that you and me could have the righteousness of God, could be called sons and daughters of God. And so we live in thanksgiving. We live in gratitude. We're not, we don't owe God anything. That was his free gift that cost him everything, that costs us nothing. So we live in gratitude, we live in grace, we live in thanksgiving, but we also look forward to his return. And we know that one day we won't do this together apart from him, but we will be in his presence seeing him as he really is and living as we were meant to live as God's children. So let's do this together this morning. Let's take this wafer. Let's take this juice 
And let's do this by putting our stake in the ground. We are God's sons. We are God's daughters. And we are living in that light until he returns. So Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ is coming back again. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we're thankful for your love. We're thankful that you laid your life down so that we know what love is. Love is sacrificial. Love endures. I'm thankful for this community of people who have shown me what love is like, who have shown me through their words and their deeds, through their sacrificial service, for their grace and their mercy to me. These folks have shown me what you are really like. And I'm thankful for that. I pray that we would continue to be a church community of people who live both with humility, knowing that we're not any better than anybody else, that we, that we have been brought into your family by your grace but we would also live in power. The power that comes from knowing that your life lives in us and that your life flows through us. And God, I pray that you would continue to give us that light in our community. That when people who live with us, people who work with us, people who go to school with us, would the they would know what you are like because they know us. So God, we give our lives to you. We ask for your continued mercy and your continued grace. We're thankful that we can enter your presence as loved children. In Jesus' name, amen.